Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Weird Al Yankovic, and you're listening to the Pantheon Network. Hey, everyone, and thanks for joining me today on My Rock Moment. I've got Dave Gabro on the show today, and he is the founder and host of the well-known podcast, Discography. Now, Discography is a weekly podcast that deep dives into artists and bands' entire discography, and then he rates them from one to five. So for anyone that would designate themselves a music aficionado, this is a podcast you want to check out. Now, in today's episode, we're going to do something a little different. Dave and I are exploring the California myth within the context of 60s and 70s rock. Surf rock, as well as other anthems that pay homage to the state, really fueled the global fascination with perfect waves and beaches flanked with tan skin and teeny bikinis, fame, beauty, and a promise of some grander way of living. Honestly, the West has been calling to folks for centuries, but the songs we'll cover today really conjure up visions and dreams of an ideal life that was far from factual for many. As you can imagine, we've got a lot of great songs to cover today in this one. We'll talk about their backstories, what the songs meant to us, and you might be surprised by some that made the list and some that didn't. So let's get into it. Dave, thank you for coming on My Rock Moment. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's an honor to bear witness to your rock moment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, you are in for a treat. Well, no, I was excited to have you on. And when you approached me with the idea of the California myth, I was intrigued. But at the same time, I thought to myself, California myth, songs that perpetuate the California myth. I live here. I was born and raised here. Is it really a myth? But you know what? It kind of is. Now you've got the, the especially right now, it's summertime. It's mid-July over here. It's hot as can be. But you've got the, the sun and the surf and the driving down Highway 1 with the top down. I mean, hell, I was doing that yesterday. Um, but I think there's something bigger to the songs that we're going to talk about today in terms of what they speak to. And so I wanted to circle back with you because you have a different take on this town. And maybe what the idea of this meant to you. Well, it's, there's a lot of, this is, LA is really where a lot of dramatic stuff happens and goes down for people because this is where they, you know, hit the casino and go for broke. And I believe that's why there's a donut shop on every corner because, <laughs> and, and yet, oddly, I never see people eat donuts. So what happens is, I believe, people come home from their auditions, they didn't get the fucking part, they draw the blinds, and they eat a 12-pack of donuts, because how else can, it's the number one industry out here is donuts, and number two is film. <laughs> Actually, that makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> Well, no, I mean, when when we were uh, talking about it, it kind of 
um, made me want to dive deeper into, you know, this whole California myth, this California dream, and the fact that this has kind of been happening out here since the 1840s, right? Since the miners came out here to start mining gold. Because people are coming out here, they want to strike it rich, they want a better life. And that idea, that type of living, that idea of it has not changed at all. Right. You know, there's the California myth is not just, you know, laying on a on a beach and being surrounded by buxom, you know, torpedo broad women. Uh, of course, I'm thinking of a 60s California myth now or 50s, but it's also you know, nursing one uh, last call at a really seedy motel uh, after you've gone to, sank to such depths that your own parents probably wouldn't even recognize you. Look, this topic might be played out, but as long as people continue to come out here and do things like that, it's going to be relevant. Yeah, totally. I mentioned this to you the other day, which I found so interesting, is that when you do a search for the California myth, you know, you get that Wikipedia page, it comes up first. Yeah. And when you click on the Wikipedia page, it redirects you to the California sound. Hmm. So it literally redirects you to the music of the 1960s, which really speak to how deeply they affected people at that time, right? So when I say the California sound or the California myth, I know your mind hooks onto something specific before you take in the entirety of the of the whole scene and experience, what what do you latch on to? I think I latch on to, even though I'm from here, I think I latch on to what everybody else latches on to. The sun, the surf, um, the notoriety, um, the idea of being somebody, jumping out of that small town and into a big town and making a big splash. All those things combined. Yeah. Find the California myth to me. What about you? Well, I it, for me, it's a palpable experience because um, I actually I have a podcast, a music podcast, just like you, um, <laughs> and and uh, I actually put out three shows a week. It's called Discography, and the idea is uh, it's uh, every week is a thematically intertwined triple podcast. Um, deep dive. So the idea is you start with um, the main show, which is free, and that's every Friday at 4 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, and it's um, either a musician, uh, usually of some notoriety, or an author or filmmaker discussing their favorite artist or band. So immediately out of the gate, they're a music nerd. They're not talking about themselves or, you know, plump themselves up. Um, but I do usually get an interview with them while they're deeply entrenched in music nerd quicksand so that I get unguarded responses. But uh, we go through their favorite artist or band's entire discography, total completist shit, singles, EPs, comp tracks, and give everything a rating between zero and five, which um, has, has been a way that I listen to music for a very long time. It gives you a bird's eye perspective on how to tie together an artist's full discography. It's like, I swear to God, it's like, um, like it's like seeing God for me. Because I feel like I can see an artist's full overview in a way that they perhaps have never really understood. And to, to bring it back to the California myth, though, <laughs> I just, uh, yeah, sorry about the long-winded response. I think to me, it's the, the actual air that, comes out of the Wilson brothers' mouths. The actual air that, not even the sound, but the the air, it is the breeze and the foundation block, building block of the entire thing for me. Yeah, That's what carried me out here. It's what um, I hung on to when things were not going my way. It's, it's, it's you know, the, the perpetuated lie that's true too. They were speaking about a world that didn't exist for them really either. Oh, not, yeah, it was totally wish fulfillment. But, you know, you had the music, I'm sorry, you had the entertainment industry before them, and then they ushered in a whole new audience, a whole new, um, I would say, mass exodus from the Midwest and the East into California based on just a few songs alone. And it started with 1961 Surfing. 
horrible song, by the way. <laughs> it is so bad. They're my favorite band in the world. And it, first of all, it's amazing if you hear how many times they gave it a crack. It's like, how many takes do you need to hear that thing? Surfing is the only life, the only way for me now. Surf. Surf. With Bob, Bob, dip to dip to dip, Bob, Bob, dip to dip. I got up this morning, turned on my radio. I was checking out the surfing scene to see if I would go. And when the DJ tells me that the surfing is fine, that's when I know my baby and I will have a good time. Go and surf, Bob, dip to dip to dip, surf, Bob, dip to dip, surf, Bob, dip to dip to dip, surf, Bob. See, my perspective is so different. I mean, I come from a family that's been in the entertainment industry and none of them ever made it big. You know, the ones that were trying to be actors and this and that. However, we always had a soft cushion to fall back on. And that's the one thing that's so hard for people in this town. They come out here with a dream and that's it. They don't have a support system. And frankly, I don't even think that they had the emotional, mental, or spiritual constitution to handle the rejection over and over and over again that they are surely going to get in this town. Ask anybody who's made it, you know, um, or is by somebody's definition a success, there are a thousand failures behind them. But I always had the close-knit family, the foundation of friends. Um, everything for me was here in this town. Right. So I was right. always able to focus on the positive aspects of it. And I grew up on the beach. So everything everybody sang about was true. You know, yeah. there was everywhere there was beautiful waves there was sand and surf and and initially when i got out here just circumstantially that stuff served only to mock me because i felt like you know i come from seasons and so for every day to be beautiful there's that internal pressure a lot of people feel of having to be outside and making the best use of the, of the day but if it's every day and uh, and again, I'm thinking about 2008 right now because it was probably the most difficult time of my life. All I wanted to do is shut the shades and eat those donuts. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, I've had many a day like that too. <laughs> yeah, but uh, tell me, uh, what's the what's the first one on your list? So the first one on my list, I mean, this was hard. You you probably came up this against the same stuff I came up against. There's just lists and lists of, you know, songs listing California in some way or making it the focal point of the song or whatever it is. But I had to go with Bob Seger, Hollywood Nights off 1978's Stranger in Town. Mm -hmm. A great song. I don't care how you feel about Bob Seger. If you can't appreciate the propulsive locomotive thrust of how that song births itself into being, you're inhuman. <laughs> you really are. <laughs> and I mean, talk about somebody who couldn't be farther away from the West Coast sensibility. I mean, he yeah. was tried and true Detroit rocker. He was Midwest through and through. But, you know, if, it, it, now if anybody needs a little bit of a, a recap or a reminder here, one section of it, she took his hand and she led him along that golden beach. They watched the waves tumble over the sand. They drove for miles and miles up those twisting, turning roads. Higher and higher they climbed. And those Hollywood nights and those Hollywood hills, she was looking so right in her diamonds and frills. I mean, come on. That gives you goosebumps. It's, it's a beautiful story. I did no, I did no research for this, but I will tell you that I know the derivation of the song. There was an article uh, in, I believe it was People magazine. I may get some of the details wrong, but the cover shot was, I believe, Cheryl Teagues. And if it wasn't Cheryl Teagues, it was someone in that exact same lane. And he, Seeger was just riffing because he had just come out, I believe, for the first time from, you know, I, I don't know if he's from Detroit Central, is he? He is. Yeah, um, pretty sure Detroit. Yeah. I need to double and check. And he kind of put a story together of somebody coming out just like him, like, uh, you know, Michael J. Fox in The Secret of My Success. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and getting off the bus, like with the piece of hay in the teeth. And uh, he whipped up a, a 
tale of the of the broken hearted based on that cover shot on people. That's exactly it. So he was dry. So he was out here and he was staying at a house in the Hollywood, uh, Hollywood Hills on Miller Street, which if anybody's familiar with L.A., Miller Street is just above La Cienega and just off of uh, Sunset Boulevard. So he's driving up that street or making his way up into the hills to get to that house. And the song or the lyrics started to come to him. Right. And he's thinking, don't forget, don't forget, don't turn on the radio yeah. because then you're just going to F it all up. Right got into the house that he was staying at and you were right it was actually time magazine though cheryl was it time cheryl teagues was on the cover the march 6th issue 1978 and the title i believe was the all american model and, <laughs> okay. okay wait a second wait a second this is all coming together too beautifully i'm a midwestern boy i'm in the hollywood hills Every man wants this. <laughs> and she is I, plenty in LA. My favorite thing about what just happened is that you were lying, like waiting to pounce to see if I got the details wrong or right. <laughs> I didn't know if you would, because I, you know, I specifically wanted to do a more emotional attachment to my songs that I purposely didn't, didn't want to fact it, uh, fact it up, but um, but I'm glad I, at least I was buzzing around the hive. You, you, oh my God, you almost had it exactly on. I'm really cool, cool. impressed. <laughs> I'm really impressed. What's your, what's your connection with this? I mean, you know, in terms of how it strikes you uh, with the topic that we're talking about. I mean, I think I know a lot of Cheryl Teagues and I knew a lot of Cheryl Teagues and I was running around those Hollywood Hills in my twenties and my thirties. And I was having incredible, incredible nights up there. Um, not as much anymore. You get older, you get over it. But there were a lot of memorable nights driving through Mulholland with friends, you know, coming from whatever party, whatever song was blasting. And as you know, because you've lived in L.A. so many years, there are all these lookout spots you can stop at, you know, as you're driving through the Hollywood Hills. And there were so many nights when we would be at those lookout spots, just listening to music, hanging out looking down at the city below you. And when you're looking down in LA, and I'm not talking about the valley side, I'm talking about the city side, anything seems possible. You know, you see all those lights. LA is huge. It is a huge, huge city. And there's so much opportunity there. Yeah, lots of heartbreak, but so much opportunity as well. And I think you truly feel it in every fiber of your being when you're sitting somewhere up in those hills looking down. Yeah. And I had a lot of moments like that. And so I think this song, especially when I was a teenager too, you know, I mean, obviously this kid was getting wrapped up in the whole LA dream. And I don't know, it appealed to me on a romantic level. This was, uh, a, well, I mean, I grew up in New Jersey, but this was a very emotionally evocative song because when I would come home from, from elementary school, my on a Friday night, it would, as I get closer and closer to the house, I would be hearing Bob Seger getting louder and louder. It's usually Bob Seger, sometimes Springsteen, but always <laughs> in, in almost like, you know, like a blue collar factory kind of thing where my dad was not a blue collar guy, but, um, but he'd always answer the door with a beer in his hand. And I just, you know, uh, uh, the Hollywood nights would typically be blasting in the background. It's so good. It's yeah. so good. So I had to make it my first one. I had to make it my first Great one. one. Hey guys, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. All right, let's get back to the interview. Western boy on his own She looked at him with those soft eyes So innocent and blue He knew right then he was too far from home I'd say my first one because it's it casts such a wide net in terms of, uh, you know, I mean, and you can, I think, rate that by how many commercials it's been co-opted for uh the young bloods version of get together of course fantastic <laughs> um it, it is really great i have always been more partial to the verses than the chorus because i'm more of a minor key kind of fella but um so i don't necessarily love when it goes major key but um but it's a great version of a song by a guy named Dino Valenti, who's a very strange uh, footnote oddity in the San Francisco scene, but he touched some pretty big things along his way. But he's also known as Chet Powers. And this guy, uh, you know, his initial version of this is definitely much more of a folk song. And he was a founding member of Quicksilver Messenger Service, but went to prison for possession of marijuana. It was probably like, you know, one seed and one stick or something. Uh, you didn't have to have much at the time to go to, to be thrown into the slammer. But uh, he figured, you know what, I'll just use my uh, the publishing from this, from Get Together to... Uh, to fund legal, I think it was just to fund legal defense. He, and he was, his thinking was, I'll just write another song and then I'll make m money from that. Thinking that get together is something that you could just pull out of your ass. It's total. It's the only time he ever had his finger on the zeitgeist. He otherwise apparently was, uh, had his head so far up his own ass that it came all the way around and back out his own mouth. Um, so he was apparently one of the biggest pricks that walked the streets of San Francisco. Really? And he came yeah. up with Get Together? Yep. Oh, that's that's disheartening. I love it. It gives get a depth. Get Together is one of the anthems of the 60s, of everything that was happening in Central and San Francisco at that time. Look, we love looking back and thinking those were the days, if only I was, 
you know, old enough to have experienced that. But in all reality, it was just a bunch, it was like really bad, racist, sexist, um, in some ways worse because, you know, uh, there was the ability to defend the bag you were in. And if you were not cool with somebody's bag, it meant you were uncool. It didn't mean that, you know, it was your response was lacking. It, it was, there was some strange shit going on around that time, for sure. I, I love that time just like you, though. What year was Get Together? What, what year did that come out? The, I don't know offhand. I'm going to say 67, but I'll, yeah, released July 67. July 67, right in the heart yeah. of the summer of love. Yeah. Just to continuously perpetuate that message, that that peace and love and that whole ethos that had, you know, was dying on the vine at that point. Yeah. Um, but that song, along with a handful of others, I feel like really became, again, the anthems for that time. Any freaking documentary you see in the 60s preaches that and a couple others, probably the one that I'm going to talk about next. But, you know, Get Together is at the top of the list. is but a song we sing Fears we will die You can make the mountains ring Or make the angels cry The minute you said get together it is in the same exact camp is San Francisco, be sure to wear some flowers in your hair. Um, I feel like when you are literally handed a book of hippies for beginners, they give you a freaking beads, they give you headbands, they give you some round specs, and then they give you probably a CD with uh, San Francisco and uh, get together on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And there's really nothing else you need to hear by Scott McKenzie. That's it. That's not it. Yeah, not written by him, written by Papa John. But uh, that one, I believe, was the product of methamphetamine. Can't remember if it was the writing or the recording or both, but methamphetamine was involved in what really is a gentle, walloping kind of tune. Yeah. Uh, but I think where it comes out is the chord changes are fucking insane. If you've, There's a lot of very busy chord changes in it. There's a lot of chord changes in it, and I think that was indicative of a lot of music of the 60s. Um, it was very sophisticated um, from a music standpoint. And, you know, like you said, Papa John, John Phillips wrote it, you know, and he did it all for Monterey Pop. Now, I don't know if he was on meth when he wrote it. I mean, odds are he could be. Um, when it was recorded by Scott McKenzie, who, by the way, was in The Journeyman with him before he jumped into The Mamas and the Papas. So that was the connection there. Um, I know Scott was wearing flowers in his hair and he was probably on drugs as he recorded it. <laughs> yeah. But just like, you know, get together, actually more so with this one, that it was like a like a siren call to all these wayward teens and these kids that had maybe been toying with the idea of running away or completely immersing themselves in the hippie culture and the counterculture scene that was happening in the 60s in San Francisco. This was like, oh, hey, by the way, this is where you want to be. We've got some gentle people here with some flowers in their hair. And oh, by the way, it's also festival season. So buy some tickets while you're at it. Yeah. And then also the fallout from from be sure to wear flowers in your hair is not that people flock to the West Coast. People flock to one street, Hage Street. And Hage Street could not support that kind of activity. So the fallout from this gentle, loving song was a community that basically sagged and then uh, and then basically was like a cake that the oven was open too soon. And in the 70s, you could get knifed just for a bag of groceries. That's it. That's, that's be sure to wear flowers in your hair for me. <laughs> well, but you're right. You're right. I mean, look, we talk about the whole California myth. The myth here was that these kids could immerse themselves in some sort of utopian lifestyle, right? Um, completely devoid of any responsibility or income or 
job. Um, we're still doing it. I mean, they were when I right after college, I went, I, you know, just it was a almost on a whim. I decided to move to San Francisco and I, I lived in a in an apartment, but there were kids who it was quite obvious. It was the modern day version of the hippie, but there were no ideals. It was just it seemed like they had hotwired a car from wherever they were and somehow found their way out there. They were all scab-ridden, living in the park. There was not a good vibe to it all. Uh, not at all. It, you know, you were checking your wallet as you walked by kind of thing. Sure, of course. And that must have been a real sad ending for so many people that were able to create this beautiful counterculture moment in 65, you know, folks like the Diggers and others that were um, longtime residents of that area. So unfortunately, the uh, the California dream died hard um, subsequent to that song, at yeah. least in terms of, you know, the whole hippie culture. Most, most uh, people I know who lived out there during that time, there's almost nobody who believes that in 1967, it was a good scene. The, most feel like it peaked in 65, 66. It did. It most definitely did, because that was before the onslaught. That was before they were getting the news coverage. You know, and the news coverage of what was happening in the Haight-Ashbury was not in any way favorable for the hippies. They were looked at as oddities. They were looked at as wild animals. You know, that's why they... Uh, it was started- a, the tour, the bus tour. Exactly. I knew I we we <laughs> it's so funny how there's like inevitable things that are touched upon if you're a rock geek and I felt it was coming the bus tour mention It had to have been <laughs> But I mean that that had to have been a horrible feeling for those yeah. kids coming out there and they were looked at as trash and you know like animals um while people were on safari the rich the rich people were on safari Actually, when I when I initially came out to San Francisco, which was September of 1993, um, the girl that I was seeing, uh, she was a girl. I was a boy. We were young. Um, she called up a local radio station and requested my next song for me and then taped it for me. And I still have the tape. And there's something about... Uh, the dedication along with the song that still to this day, I can feel the inherent promise of the band of the song and of that time, which is the Beach Boys, California Girls. The Beach Boys, California Girls is an incredible example of certainly what was going on in Brian Wilson's head at the time, which was an incredible, almost hysterically funny mashup of pure LSD tinged brilliance (laughs) and just, Corn pone, the two, those two things being mashed together are just downright strange to me. I like both of them. I'm more a symphonic intro guy than a doodle doodle. Um, but and you know that's Brian Wilson's favorite piece of music he's ever done is that that intro section. But the you know I could pick so many songs by the Beach Boys. And in fact, there were a few others before this one. Uh, Girls on the Beach was there on the list before California Girls. Warmth of the Sun I toyed with. But ultimately, if we're talking about California myth, California Girls is almost like an ad. It's the closest thing to an advertisement by City Hall for California (laughs) that I have on my list. As growing up as a California girl, I mean, I connected with this song. I thought, yeah, of yeah. course. You know what? No other girls in any other region of this country has anything on us. Honorable, honorable mention to Katy Perry. By honorable the way. mention to Ka- Katy Perry. And where I'm concerned personally, 
honorable mention to David Lee Roth because when he did California yeah. Girls and that video came out in MTV. Now, I was at a very impressionable time. I don't know what how old, I think it was five. <laughs> So you were born in 78 or no, 80? 79. David Lee Roth was, yeah, somewhere around there. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't allowed to watch MTV. You weren't allowed to watch? Was your dad a preacher? No. Okay. <laughs> I was just the first child and they were trying to do right by me and, you know. Um, <laughs> and when David Lee Roth did that music video, California Girls, and I remember all the women, you know, scantily clad, they had their 1980s bathing suits on, which was virtually nothing, just these little strings holding them together. I, if I remember correctly, it's been a while since I've seen the video. And I, I remember thinking to myself, so this is what guys want. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that video and Hot for Teacher were both seared into my brain as a young, malleable little girl. I mean, that, would, that is, a, is a horrible time for women to have grown up in. There were all kinds of horrible times for women to grow up in, but that seems to have been, you know, around the time of that and cherry pie. Oh, and by yeah. the way, that that nerd got the got the girl. I know he did. He married her. She, I saw yeah, her on yeah. the star search, and I thought she was the prettiest thing I ever saw. I think I even tried to call in and vote for her. <laughs> I can't count myself as a warrant fan, but you know the the thing I do connect with is a guy who probably always felt you know really uncomfortable in his own skin who then, you know, decided that this was his only shot to have any kind of a, you know, a noteworthy life. And he got the girl. And it's not about the girl because they divorced, what, two years later, I think. But yeah. And he's no longer know, Right, right. Unfortunately, yeah. Nice California story again. Another perfect California story, actually. Despite all that, and I think that I, you know, in the course of this conversation have been very clear about the fact that I absolutely love Los Angeles. I love being from here. Any, any of my listeners know that as well. I love this city. I am not in any way under any illusions that it is without fault. It's with many. Um, but I do love this town. And it's also why I absolutely love Randy Newman's song, I Love L.A. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> more basic and tacky and gaudy than this song. But I love the fact that essentially Randy Newman was inspired to write this song. He took a long break from recording, right? And he had some house, I don't know, probably a very nice house at this point um, in the valley. And he was becoming a fixture in the backyard next to the pool to the point where the uh, gardener would literally just water over him. He was just living that suburban high life with his family. And he was like, okay, I, I need to get back to the recording studio. And he wrote uh, something to sing about which I guess did not bowl anybody over, so it didn't make it in, into any of the albums. But from that song came I Love L.A. So, of course, it's got themes of hedonism and, you know, disillusion. I mean, the whole album is called Trouble in Paradise, but he decided to write it for a couple of reasons. And one of the main reasons was he was on a plane with Don Henley. I mean, talk about a guy who knows uh, knows how to write an anthem about the city. Um, and Don Henley was like, you know what? You should write something about L.A. You are a born and bred Angelino. There aren't many of you out there. You should do it. So he decided to do it. And by the way, fun fact, do you know who sings in the background the we love it part? Victory Boulevard. I, we love it. Santa I, feel like I, I feel like I knew at one point. Who is it? Oh, my God. It couldn't get any better. Christine McVie and Lindsay Buckingham. 
Oh, nice, nice. I, I don't think I did know that. That's great. He was having a real, you know, he's had an interesting arc in his career. And I feel like that time, Born Again into Trouble in Paradise, was a fulcrum point because people weren't understanding at that point. Is he kidding or is he not kidding? Oh, yeah, but he was always kidding. Yeah, I know. He's always distanced. But the thing is, Born Again was the one where people were like, that was the one that was most guilty of that. Most, at least, rock critics are like, this is muddled, the perspective is off. And I think with Trouble in Paradise, it was uh, almost like a way to get a little bit more towards the middle of the road. Mm -hmm. But for him, that's always interesting because his sensibility is so fucking skewed that for him to attempt to drive in that direction is always going to produce very interesting results. And he's a Trojan horse. He's, you know, he's written songs from the vantage point of rapists um, in, um, what's the song? Uh, it, it's not Lucinda. It's one of the songs that, 12 songs. I can't remember which which one it is. But, you know, and he's doing, he's the perfect guy to do children's movie soundtracks because of his ineffable grasp, grasp of melody. Mm-hmm. It's a very Los, An- Los Angelian grasp of melody in the Nelson School. And it always has a blue streak to it, uh, but, uh, but never loses sight of a, a good top line. No. Not at all. And I mean, if you look listen to the lyrics, um, they're very celebratory. But, you know, when he says, look at those mountains, look at those trees, look at that bum over there, man, he's down on his knees. He's pointing out the homeless situation, which has only gotten worse since then. You almost take a moment to pause if you're belting this song out loud because you're like, oh, wait. (laughs) It's, It's funny. You know, I forgot that those lyrics were for him, I think, so simplistic. Because he doesn't generally write simplistically like that. To me, that's very facile, you know, to lay it out like that, which, because he's a borderline, or not even borderline, he's lyrically a genius. I don't generally, uh, you know, focus on lyrics, but for him, you'd be missing uh, about as much as you would in a Dylan song. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, a lot of things with him are tongue in cheek, and this song is not an exception. I think people play it the way they play Born in the USA. <laughs> exactly. It's a perfect example. You know, when people, whether or not they miss or get the point, it's always good to hear it. <laughs> oh, yeah. It is always good to hear it, especially at the end of a, a Dodger game, a winning streak, and that song starts playing, and people are on their feet. one that unintentionally goes head to head with that one because that's a song that has a sense of humor about it and this one does not because I don't think Stephen Stills understands the concept of a sense of humor as much as I love him, uh, or at least as much as I loved him for six years. But Buffalo Springfield's For What It's Worth is an obvious one, but it's very funny to me because when you listen to the lyrics, it sounds like a revolution. But, you know, talk about written from a a young man's point of view. He was cranky because he couldn't stay up late at the clubs because of the curfew that was imposed on the Sunset Strip crowd. So, you know, trying to turn that into a grasp at profundity is hysterically funny, but obviously it still goes down as a great accomplishment. It's not my favorite Buffalo Springfield song, nor is it even close to my favorite Stephen Stills song, but it's still you know, really good. And his legend probably mainly rests on this. I mean, was it a, this is not the right term, um, a happy accident or luck that it coincided with the Vietnam War and could be construed into something much larger? 
to have a much larger meaning. Because for him, you were right. He was literally driving through the uh, Crescent and uh, Sunset Boulevard uh, intersection. And there mm-hmm. was kids everywhere and they were picketing. And he was like, what the hell is this? There's something happening here. But because of the sign of the times, it was used um, is essentially the, the or, or the song was the poster child for a much bigger struggle that this uh, generation was engaged in. I'm, I'm sure it's 1000 percent on purpose. I don't think it was co-opted by anti-Vietnam. I believe that just like myself, where my emotions were writ, they still are actually, unfortunately, but writ very large as a as a teenager. Uh, you know, I thought that my stupid little tantrums were universal, just like Stephen Stills. <laughs> well, in this case, he was very right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, could we even be talking about Buffalo Springfield? I mean, they were a great band. They're one of my favorites. Great band, yeah. <laughs> but would we be talking about them with such reverence? I mean, yes, Neil Young came out of there and everything. If they didn't have um, an epic anthem like for what it's worth. I wouldn't even put that in their top 10 songs. Oh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't either. I wouldn't. However, it was that it was that catchy tune. I mean, this is what we've been talking about that was able to get into everyone's ears, into everyone's heads. And it has now been the official song of Vietnam for every freaking special and movie that you see. Something happening here But what it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop, children What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down I had to dip my uh, toes into California Sun with the Rivieras. Mm-hmm. Great I song. Mean, <laughs> great song, again, sung by a bunch of Midwest teenagers that after, and this is a cover, this is a cover that they did. Um, I think it was done, you know, initially by some New Orleans uh, singer. Uh, what was his name? I wrote it down. Joe Jones was mm-hmm. the original singer of this, and then they did a cover of it, but. A in- man uh, in desperate need of a stage name. these kids were being called to dinner as they were recording this thing i mean they left to go back to school college you know to get a job i mean that band fizzled out quicker than (laughs) but i will say the song to me um really held weight because let's go back to like 1986 Every summer we spent in Lake Havasu because my aunt and uncle had a house out there and it was fun for us. And we are in this boat right before we're about to hit the London Bridge. And all throughout the London Bridge area, there are all these like, you know, outdoor bars with misters and stuff. And this is 1986. So you're getting a bunch of tattooed people drinking Coors Light. Some of the women don't even have their tops on. And I'm watching this scene unfold. And we've already established the fact that I was completely riveted by California Girls by Dave Lee Ross. So naturally, this scene would be, you know, pretty fascinating to me. And one of the outdoor bars where all these like 20-somethings were having a ton of fun and, you know, molesting each other and whatever. (laughs) California Sun was blasting from the stereos, whatever they use, the speakers. (laughs) And I remember having, why I would remember that, I don't know, but I'm hearing, well, I'm going out west where I belong, where the days are short and the nights are long, you know, (laughs) and these people are kind of like dancing to it while they're out there having fun in the warm California sun. Havasu, by the way, is not in California, but for the sake of my memory, it, they were having fun in the warm California sun. I had to, I had to throw that anecdotal one in there. That's a great one. That's a really, and it's a great one. I think really because of the displacement of that Midwestern thing. Because if you're not growing up around water, if you know, my experience was with the Atlantic Ocean. But if you're coming from the Midwest, the California myth, it really must be a whole different thing. 
just where I belong Well, the days are short and the nights are long Where they walk and I walk They twist and I twist They shimmy and I shimmy They fly and I fly Well, they're out there having fun In that one California sun Well, I'm going out of west out on the coast Where the California girls are really the I uh, love the love one. I really want to touch on because when you were talking about looking down and looking down on the city and seeing that everything was possible, I think that's what you said, right? Seeing that everything was possible. That was when you were talking about Hollywood Nights. So this is sort of the dark side of that. The Red Telephone by Love is on one of the greatest albums of all time. If you don't agree with that, you're simply wrong. And uh, it's called Forever Changes. It came out at the end of, I believe, the end of 67, like December 67. And it is the sort of uh, pastoral, autumnal, dark, folk uh, afterthought to the Sgt. Pepper Summer of Love era. But it's more, it's less acid-informed, even though the last song, You Set the Scene, is a template for acid music. It really is more of a heroin record. There's a darkness, um, a, a real serious darkness to it, where Arthur Lee, it feels like he's saying goodbye, and then he spends the... It's like somebody who comes to your house and spends some time there, and then they're on your front porch waving goodbye, and you shut the door, and for the rest of that person's life, they're standing there continually waving goodbye. And it started here for him, um, but the red telephone is him, you know, they had this communal style thing in Los Feliz where they would engage in very odd behavior. It was Bela Lugosi's old house and red telephone is them kind of looking down mainly Arthur Lee. And I think he had like this premonition, like uh, apocalypse feel about, about LA end of times kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. I, I am probably, I know you're lying in wait, ready to pounce with the actual facts. No, <laughs> not at all. Not at all. But you, you are indeed correct. This was really their love letter to Los Angeles and a goodbye, which none of them saw coming. Um, but you know, creative differences and things like that, um, got in the way and it, forever changes is a seminal album. And if you listen to it, I mean, creative differences, by the way, if I may, if I may say creative differences is just that they were not clones of Arthur Lee. He didn't want opposing sensibilities, uh, combating what he had to say, which, you know, it's, it's incredible when you look at something from the outside looking in, it's so apparent that for, Arthur Lee's gift to truly take flight and activate. You needed Brian McLean's almost Broadway-like sensibilities. Mm -hmm. And I think you also needed the grounding of Johnny Eccles. Yes. I mean, every, everybody in that band played a very specific role, and together they came together as love, as a very successful band. But Arthur had delusions of grandeur, um, and I don't think any of them were able to corral that. I mean, yeah. their breakup was inevitable as his head got bigger and bigger. Um, but if you listen to the album and you take each song, song by song, each one to me sounds so different. Yeah. There, there is, um, each one evokes a different vibe and it is very dark. It is very dark. There's some lyrics, I mean, are almost hard to listen to. And it's about their experiences and the you know things that they've been through. But um, it's a beautiful album altogether. And love was Los Angeles. I mean, yeah. they were your quintessential LA band that never made it. And there's a very there's a lot of reasons for it, but there's one very simple reason, which is that they would not leave Los Angeles. The Doors were love if they had left Los Angeles. Exactly. It's kind of as simple as that. And then the other one, which is, you know, talking about the donut shops and the CD motels, 
the the classic gesture of Los Angeles songwriting for those failed auditions and and you know ad nauseum at all at all is Warren Zevon's Desperados Unto the Eaves with one of the great outros of all time and it's an air conditioner. It's an imi- it's a vocal imitation of a of of uh, of of an air conditioner and it's so poetically moving it's impossible to put into words but it's the great LA loser song in my in my eyes there's no better losing <laughs> in los angeles is much more difficult than losing anywhere else it really is you know, you know that and so it's uh this is a it's a, this is a celebration of losing in los angeles well only warren zevon could could uh, write a song like that i mean truly yeah we go back to to Randy Newman, and there are a lot of similarities between those two. Um, but if I if I may, you know the the one that really makes me feel the limitless promise of L.A. because it's not a hit, but the one more than any, even more than California Girls, is a, a deep cut on an Association record. The Association are one of my favorite bands. And in a few weeks, actually in mid-August, I'm going to do a four-week run of a 13-hour interview I did with the two founding members. And On a Quiet Night, which was written by P.F. Sloan and sung by Jim Yester of the band, to me, there's something ineffable, mysterious, and I can't quite put my finger on it, but I'm in the canyons. I'm like part of the breeze that blows through the canyons. Part of the the that essence that touches L.A. when there's magic in the air, it's not often because a lot of times you're looking for a parking spot. It's the mundanity of it, the you know the 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 you know the stomach churning glitziness of it. Uh, to me, stomach churning because I just like to wear t- you know just a ratty T-shirt and ripped jeans. I'm not, I don't like to look up and down at my work. But on a quiet night, the magic that blew through the canyons, the real, the real true aesthetic magic that was blowing through the air in Laurel Canyon at that time, which made it like France of the 20s or you know these real. Serious scenes where you knew something truly was going on, that there really was something happening here, and you know that Tim Buckley could walk by, uh, could could walk by Frank Zappa's house, who could walk by, you know, um, um, which is the, which monkey was out there? Uh, Dolan's. They probably were all out there. I can't re- recall, but it was a point in time that, you know, that Charlie Manson screwed up but it was it was an amazing time apparently i'll never know it because all i all i do is read about it listen to it and try to put these things together in a way that's emotionally resonant and that the associations on a quiet night distills for me in a sonic three-minute caplet that's easy for me to understand but i'll never get to live it and that song is as close to me as I'll get. I mean, the association. It's all I got. It's all I got. I'm on the outside looking in. I was born <laughs> in 72. I was minus five when everyone was tripping, tripping their fucking faces off. Uh, and we'll never get to really understand what it was like. And it probably was not nearly as cool as we make it out to be because we're romantics. I am about it. I could build it up in my head. But it was probably, you know, just as mundane as anything else is, but it, the the looking back at it, it's touched by a magic that's guided my life. So hindsight's twenty twenty, and Jackson Brown's said a number of times on a number of specials. There was nothing happening at the time. We were just living our lives. It wasn't like we were fully aware that we were in the middle of some sort of musical zeitgeist. Um, but that's how that's how a lot of things happen. You know, you don't really realize the significance of it until. It's happened until it's passed, until you have something to compare it to. I think they knew, though. They had to have known because the transition, the fulcrum point from the 50s to the 60s was so intense. It really was like, even though 
it, it literally went from black and white to color in film and in television and everything. The world exploded in that way, in in a way where they had to have known that history was being made. It, it, you know, oftentimes I don't think we do know. Obviously, living through the pandemic, living through the January 6th riots, all these things that are just like, you know, obviously this is history. But, you know, Woodstock, they knew. They knew when it was happening. I think um, they knew when the Beatles hit, you know, that now they had the freedom to explore a certain type of music, certain type of sounds that maybe pre-Beatles they wouldn't have been able to. I think there was that basic understanding. I think that they they knew this was a new sound and they were at the forefront of it. Um, but I don't think you ever, maybe some did, but I don't think you ever project 60, 70 years in the future and you're wondering how relevant is what I'm writing right now going to be to some 17-year-old kid sitting in his basement listening to my music. I don't know. And I the mean, great thing about it is, that because we're able to extrapolate maybe the essence of what this thing is for us, we can leave the unsavory aspects behind. As with anything, right? We can pick and choose what we what we want to remember. And um, this music is is timeless and it's good. And there hasn't been anything like it since. No, I love all kinds of music. I'm not just a 60s and 70s guy, but ultimately my heart, rests with this with this music with this era um it was almost impossible to make something that was not good because there had to have been a palpable magic in the air you couldn't fuck anything up it was like there was if you made something bad in 67 68 you sucked <laughs> really were hopeless hopeless <laughs> Because all you had to do was like reach up and grab it and pull it down. That's it. For the most part, yeah, especially out here in L.A. I mean, look, you move up to Laurel Canyon, you get some famous friends that could kind of help you get an introduction uh, to the music, you know, whatever moguls uh, they needed to meet to um, to get a, a recording contract. And they put together some music and bam, 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 they're on the radio. It seems so easy back then. But the the music was so good. It really was so good. So anyhow, I mean, obviously this whole um, podcast of mine pays homage to that time and place. And there's a palpable feeling, not just in your show, but your Instagram account. You know, you, um, it's all, it's very much of a piece. It's not, you know, it's a, it's a very, very much a time and place focused uh, thing that puts you in that frame of mind like you're there. Oh, thank you. I guess that's where I live most of the time. So the uh, Instagram account is a manifestation. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, but anyway, Dave, this has been so much fun. Um, thank you for coming. Awesome. And for everybody listening, please check out Dave's uh, podcast. I will put a link to his podcast and all other pertinent information in the show notes. Thank you, Dave. Amanda, thank you so much. Please don't stop what you're doing. Yeah, likewise. I was staring in my empty coffee cup I was thinking that the gypsy wasn't blind All the salty margaritas in Los Angeles I'm gonna drink them up And if California slides into the ocean Like the mystics and statistics say all right, a big thank you to Dave Gabro for being on. I will put a link to his podcast, Discography, in the show notes, so be sure to check those out. And after our conversation, my take on the California myth is that it is alive and well, but whether it's a myth or an actual dream depends on who you talk to. That is it for now. Look forward to seeing you guys at the next episode. Have a great one.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.